0: Todd, thanks for being here to preach, brother. Brother. Thank you, man. Well, uh, again, it's my privilege to be here with all of you. I want to thank uh, Owen for the invitation to be here, not just with you this morning, but uh, with the men this evening and teaching the men's Sunday school class uh, beforehand as well. I want to bring you greetings on behalf of those 1,800 Southern Baptist churches that I mentioned earlier right here in the state of Oklahoma. A lot of times when I say... There's almost 1,800 Southern Baptist churches in Oklahoma. People kind of drop a, drop a jaw and raise an eyebrow. There's that many. And if you think about it, all the little towns in Oklahoma, there's about a Baptist church in every town, right? That and the Dollar General now in Oklahoma these days. Can I get an amen or an o oh me on that? And, uh, and some of our towns have more than one. So I just want to say a very special thank you to this church. I, I mentioned it to the men earlier. But thank you for this church's gifts to the cooperative program. Uh, You may or may not know, but every time you give to your church, every uh, undesignated gift here at Emmaus, your church gives a a percentage of that to what we call the cooperative program, and we keep uh, part of that here in state, and we fund things like Falls Creek and Cross Timbers. Baptist Collegiate Ministries, Disaster Relief, many other things we we fund with that. And then we also use the cooperative program just to help fund Oklahoma Baptist University, our children's home, our retirement center, Water's Edge, which manages all of our investments and endowments, and then a significant portion of the cooperative program that you send to us, we send to Nashville. And about half of what sends to Nashville, uh, it funds the International Mission Board, and most of what's left funds the North American Mission Board and our six Southern Baptist seminaries uh, throughout the country. So what's amazing about being a Southern Baptist and being a part of a church that gives with a corporate program is every single thing that I just mentioned and then some, you are actually helping to support when you give to your church. Now, listen to me, friends. There is no other religious body or denomination that funds missions and ministries like that. And so it really is a great uh, privilege to be able to partner together to advance the gospel all over the globe. And if you do a little history of uh, Southern Baptists, that, that, that is really the, the main and only reason we ever agreed to come together. We Baptists are kind of a bunch of independent, autonomous thinking bunch, aren't we? And we agreed to associate with each other so that we could fund missions more efficiently and effectively for the gospel. Now, you didn't come to church this morning to hear a stump speech on the cooperative program. Uh, you were getting bored with that. In fact, I was getting bored with that. So let's, uh, let's just kind of share a message today. As, as Owen said, I, I want to share with you from Exodus 3. Now, just a second ago, I said, being a pastor is not an easy thing. But I also want to say, I think being a follower of Christ today is not necessarily an easy thing. Uh, we live today in a culture that really is just moving further and further away and at an even quicker pace away from God, the things of God, away from His Word. And it's not an easy thing to stand for the Lord, to stand for what the Word of God says in our culture today. And that really should not surprise us, because Jesus, when He said, when you come to follow me, Jesus never promised us that the path would be easy. In fact, Jesus promised us the dead opposite, didn't He? And Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble if you're a follower of Christ. So what I want to do this morning is I want to just encourage you a little bit. As you may find it difficult sometimes to follow the Lord and to obey his word in this culture and world that we live in today, I want to just remind us that the Lord is present with us. In everything that he's called us to do and everything that he's asked us to do, the Lord is present. Now, uh, let me just kind of try to get us in a framework for the passage that we want to study here, just a few short verses in Exodus 3. But uh, how how many of you like stories of transformation? Okay, I, I think we kind of like that, right? Um, uh, we like we like to see pictures of before and after pictures. We we like to see the before picture of someone's house or a room or a backyard, and this is what it looked like before. And then we see the after picture, right? And they put all this blood, sweat, and tears into it, and wow, it looks amazing. We we we, we like the the stories of positive change Uh, sometimes we'll do that with our with our own bodies right hey here's what i look like before and then i did all this working out and i and i and i went on a diet and here's what i look like after by the way i have learned in my uh years of experience on this earth that diets actually work it's people that don't uh you can think on that one when you're eating a cheese enchilada or a cheeseburger at lunch today which uh, i probably will be doing But you may not have ever really thought about it, but actually the book of Exodus is a before and after picture of Moses. I mean, really, right in front of us, for our very eyes, as we read through the whole book of Exodus, uh, we see a man who is transforming. Now, we're going to read in Exodus 3, and this is kind of a before picture of Moses, now, uh, to set up where we're going to study here, just a, a moment, uh, Moses is standing before the burning bush and he is talking to God. And it, this, is, this is a bush and it's on fire, and yet it's not being consumed. So here's the miracle in there. And, and, and God is, is audibly communicating, speaking with Moses here. And God is calling Moses to this what seems to be Herculean task, right? Moses, I want you to go into Egypt and I want you to confront Pharaoh and I want you to liberate my people from hundreds of years of slavery there in Egypt. It's a huge ask of God, a huge call. And just think for a moment now, uh, what God is calling you to do, to follow Christ and to obey his word, is really no small feat, and so here is Moses in the before picture of Moses. What is Moses' response to God at the burning bush? Hey, Moses, I want you to go do this amazingly huge task. It's going to sound impossible, but I want you to go to do it. And Moses' response is essentially, I, 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 me? And you remember the narrative. I mean, Moses throws every, every, every excuse in the book at God. Uh God. God, what if the people won't listen to me? What if the people don't like me? What if the Pharaoh is mean to me? Well, I don't know what to say. Forget that. I don't even know. I, I can't even speak. I stutter. Send Aaron. But God keeps talking to Moses. and finally, you get, In fact, you get to chapter 4, and Moses just straight up says to God in, in those exact words, God, send somebody else. That's Moses of Exodus chapter 3. But I got to do is go about ten chapters down the road here, and we have Moses chapter thirteen and chapter fourteen, and it's it's a huge study in contrast. Moses chapter three, I I I I excuse excuse excuse. Moses chapter thirteen. Uh, Moses has his toes on the beach on the edge of the Red Sea. A huge obstacle, an impassable obstacle that lies in front of him. Uh, behind him are what some scholars say could be as many as a million and a half people. And behind them you can hear the thundering hoofbeats of Pharaoh's horses and chariots coming to get him. And what does Moses do in front of this impassable barrier? Uh, By the way, I I, I believe it was the Red Sea, and I believe God parted it, and dried it up and, and it was a miracle you know, so, some scholars say it was only ankle deep water and this hot desert wind called the Sirocco just happened to blow right at the perfect time and it actually dried out the Reed Sea and that's how they got across and you know my response to that is if you want to believe the Red Sea was the Reed Sea and it was ankle deep water hey in my book it's even a bigger miracle because that means God drowned that entire Egyptian army in ankle deep water Okay, so that's just my two cents on that if, if, if this were Moses chapter 3, in this moment, he would have wanted to just melt into the sand. He would have dig a hole. Get me out of here, God. They're going to kill me. But what does he do in chapter 13? I mean, he just turns around and looks at the people and says, Step back and watch the powerful hand of God. Now, we should ask ourselves this question. What has transformed Moses From uh, 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 uh to this. I think it begins in the few verses that we're going to read and study this morning. So I want you to look at your Bible, Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. I think the transformation of Moses begins when he really starts to understand who the God is that is calling him to this task. Exodus three thirteen. in front of the burning bush, Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Well, what shall I say to them? By the way, in the context, I don't even think that's an honest question. I think it's actually another one of Moses' excuses. Right? Oh, God, God! I can't go in there. I don't even know your name. I don't even really know who you are. So how could I go in there if I don't even know that? So here's what God says to him. Verse 14. And God said to Moses, Moses, you want to know my name? Here's my name. I am who I am. And that's not God trying to sound like Popeye. Thank you for laughing at that, those of you older than me in the audience. I am who I am. I am is his name. That's the name that God gives to Moses, I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I think Moses begins to transform when he understands who God is that's calling him to this task and what God is going to do in and through him and for him. And we know what he's going to do for Moses and through Moses just in this name that he gave him, I am. Now to cut to the chase for a second... What's happening to Moses is this. Moses is moving from finding his identity and purpose and courage in himself or anything else. I mean, let's face it. When Moses is standing here in Exodus 3, he's been in the wilderness for 40 years tending to his father-in-law's flocks. He doesn't doesn't think he's much of anything, right? And then all of a sudden, when he knows who this God is that's called him, he moves from a self Confidence to a God confidence. And instead of finding his identity in himself or what he does, he begins to find his identity in who God is and what God does in and through him. And that's a big difference. Now, I think all of us need to think about where do I find my confidence? Where do I find my identity? You know, there are several kinds, um, there is self confidence. Now, self-confidence kind of in and of itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's good to be self-confident when you when you're going into a big interview or you got a big exam or you got a big game or a big something. You know, but but the problem with self-confidence is if your identity and your confidence and your purpose is ultimately built on you, it's going to collapse because you, me, we're all sinners. We're all flawed people with feet of clay. And if I build my whole world, you know, and I build everything about me in and around me, it's gonna, it's gonna collapse. Uh, y- y'all may remember the anecdotal story about Muhammad Ali. Y'all remember Muhammad Ali? Muhammad Ali was the epitome of self-confidence, right? It was, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Again, if you're older than me, you know those. If you're younger than me, Google it. Uh, but the little anecdotal story is Muhammad Ali's on an airplane going somewhere, and the stewardess walks by and very kindly says, Mr. Ali, you need to fasten your seatbelt. And he looks at her very braggadociously, and he says, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she kindly responded, Superman don't need no airplane. Put on your seatbelt. You know, eventually it's going to break down. Uh, You've got group confidence. Sometimes we feel a little more courage to do something we otherwise would not do uh, until we're around other people that will do that. right? We have leader confidence. Sometimes there's a leader that inspires us to do something maybe we wouldn't do. I mean, my goodness, you look at Ukraine today and you look at President Zelensky, how he has just instilled this courage and and, and perseverance in in his people. But friends, All of those confidence, eventually they're going to break down because they're either built around me or they're built around another just regular human being. The greatest confidence is a God confidence. And really, as followers of Christ, I only find my identity and my purpose in Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, I want all of you to look at me. I'm I'm, I'm going to tell you something really interesting. You ready? Listen to the stat. This is going to kind of knock your socks off, but listen to this. Did you know that in the last 12 years, since the year 2010, there have been 10,000 books written and published that have the word identity in the title? Is that not amazing? Now, can I tell you this? Friends, we in this country are in an identity crisis. We, 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 we are in an identity. We want to know, uh, where did I come from? What am I supposed to do while I'm here? What's going to happen to me am I, after I die? Is anything going to happen after I die? What is right and what is wrong? What is true and what is false? What is moral and what is immoral? Uh, how many genders do we have? How many, all of this. I mean, our world is struggling with identity And and I'm just going to stand here and tell you, you're only going to find the satisfactory answers to any of those questions in this book that I'm holding in my hands. And in finding our identity and purpose in the God who created us and who calls us. So, friends, it isn't easy then to live for his truth. It isn't easy to do this. Sometimes we feel like Moses chapter 3. How do I get to Moses chapter 13? Well, the first thing I want us to do this morning in this, just very quickly, is I want us just to examine for a moment the name that God says is his that he gives to Moses. I am who I am. I am has sent you. Now, you have probably heard of the name Yahweh for God Uh, Principally, in the Old Testament, you have two major names for God. You have Elohim and you have Yahweh. Um, Elohim, if I can use the vernacular, I don't want to offend anyone, but but, but Elohim is kind of God's proper name. Elohim is kind of God's business suit and tie name, right? His cosmic, universal, omniscient, omnipotent uh, kind of name. But Yahweh is kind of God's business casual name. Uh, This is the name used of God when it wants to speak to us about God's personal nature. How God is present with us. And I am is most closely associated with Yahweh. So when Moses says to God, hey God, that's not an easy thing. Uh, exactly how is this all going to happen? You know what God basically says to Moses? Moses, go and obey me. Go and do what I've told you to do. And here's why. Because I am with you. Now, if you want to explore this real quick, this is really, this is really fascinating. Uh, just, just to kind of mind the depths of his, his being the, the God that wants to have a relationship with us, present with us. Okay, just real quick. W- let me walk through this with you. Uh. About 150 years ago or so, 200 years ago, in Germany, there sprang up in the colleges and seminaries there these very, very liberal professors. And, and they denied the inspiration of scripture, they denied the inerrancy of scripture, they, they, they denied the cardinal doctrines of Christianity they didn't believe Jesus was divine and the son of God, they didn't certainly didn't believe he was born of a virgin, they certainly didn't believe he did miracles, and what they basically said is that the Bible was really just a bunch of allegorical, mythological things that people had kind of made up all through the years, and that our understanding of the Bible and Christianity and God as we knew it, in a traditional, classical sense, was completely false. Now one of, the, one of the things they did was they came at the book of Genesis. By the way, if you can get the book of Genesis to crumble, you can get the whole thing to crumble. Because in Genesis, we see all of it right there. We see who God is. We see that he's created us. We see he's created us in his image. We see that we have sinned, and we see how we have ruined it all. You even, as early as Genesis chapter 3, you see God killing, something dies for the first time in the Bible in Genesis 3 after they sinned, and God has killed animals to provide covering for Adam and Eve because they're ashamed in their nakedness. So you see a picture of the blood. Blood is going to have to be shed. To make this all right it's all right in genesis so they they, they said that whole christianity thing was house cards if they come in genesis they'll hit the bottom and they'll knock the whole thing down so one of the things they said was they said oh you you poor simple christians y'all think moses wrote The book of Genesis. In fact, y'all think Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Y'all think he wrote the first five books of the Bible. And we're going to tell you that Moses didn't write this. In fact, it was written by different people, different places, different times, and all of it's just mythological, blah, blah, blah. By the way, I believe that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. I'm an old fuddy-duddy, but I still stand by that. And the reason I believe Moses wrote the Pentateuch is because when I read in the Gospels, Jesus thinks Moses wrote the Pentateuch. So I'm just going to go with what Jesus says, okay? Okay. So what they said was, they said, uh, all these different people wrote it, and, and here's the proof. The proof is Genesis 1 and 2, and they use these two names of God as kind of the icing on the cake, because all of y'all are looking at me like, why are you telling this story? Make a point. Y'all read Genesis 1 and 2? In the Bible, there's actually two accounts of creation. Genesis 1 is an account of creation, but then you have another account of creation in Genesis 2. And so these critical scholars said, well, why would one man, if he was writing it, why would he just repeat himself and say chapter 1 and then he would say chapter 2? But then the really big thing was, here's the amazing part. You ready? In chapter 1 of Genesis, every single reference to God is the name Elohim. But in Genesis 2 to 4, every single reference to God is the name Elohim. Yahweh and so these critical scholars said, well there you have it see this guy wrote Genesis 1 and he wrote his account of creation and his favorite name for God was Elohim and then this different guy in a different place in a different time he wrote his account of creation and his favorite name for God was Yahweh and so that proves that Moses didn't write it that proves it's all allegorical and mythological etc cetera, etc cetera, et cetera." and said, so, wait a minute stop hang on would it not make sense For this to be true, have you all read Genesis 1 and 2 lately? Remember what it said? Remember, Genesis 1 is the account of creation universally. It's in Genesis 1 that God creates the sun and the moon and the stars and all of the universe. But Genesis 2 never leaves the Garden of Eden. Genesis 1 is like creation at 30,000 feet. Genesis 2 is like creation at 3 feet. So wouldn't it make sense then for Moses when he's describing the universal, cosmic, all-powerful God who brings everything into existence with a spoken word, wouldn't it make sense that Moses describing God in that sense would use Elohim, his cosmic, all-powerful name? But when he's principally focused on God creating Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, now wouldn't that make sense that he would use Yahweh, God's personal, relational name? By the way, if you like to keep score on this kind of thing, here's a real cool one, okay? Free of charge. None of y'all paid anything to get in here, so you're kind of getting what you paid for anyway. I said to you, every reference to God in Genesis 2-4 to is Yahweh uh, except one. There is one Elohim in Genesis 2-4. to Guess where it is? It's when Satan comes and slithers up next to Eve and lies to her, about God. (laughs) He's lying to you! If you eat that fruit, you'll become just like him, and you'll know everything like him, and you'll be all powerful like him. And that's why he doesn't want you to eat that fruit. And when Moses is describing how Satan is telling a falsehood about God, it's in that moment that Moses switches back to the proper name for God, as if he is correcting Satan. Oh, that's so cool. Here's a little application for you. You know what we learned from that? Look at my face. I don't want to come here as as your guest preacher today and be kind of hellfire and brimstone, but here it comes. You ready? You know what we learned from that little thing? You better make really good and sure that the God you are following is the God of the Bible and not some God you have created that will let you do whatever sinful thing you want to do. But I went through all of that to tell you I believe Moses, in using this I am, Yahweh, in Genesis 2 and here, he is strongly trying to communicate to his audience. It doesn't matter what God calls you to, and he may call you to some pretty difficult things. He is with you, he walks through it with you. He'll be with the words of your mouth, he'll be with your thoughts, he'll guide your steps. And I'm going to tell you something, my friends. God calls every one of us in this room to some pretty difficult things. I don't, I don't know very many of y'all. I know some of y'all. But I can only imagine that some of you in this room listening to me right now, uh, you have been called through the journey of cancer. Some of you have been called through the journey of divorce. You've been called through the journey of losing a spouse. You've been called through this journey of losing your job. You've been called through the journey of a prodigal son or daughter. And whatever place you find yourself in, you need to know this. Whatever difficult circumstance God has called you to, to weather in faithfulness, you need to know this. He is with you. And you can take that to the bank. His presence is with you. Now, here's the second thing, real quick. I think we learn from this little text here. Moses, we, we, we've got to obey God, and we've got to believe that he's with us, even when we don't feel like it, okay? And you think Moses feels like doing this? <laughs> no. Do we feel like enduring cancer or enduring some, something in our family? or, or No, we don't, we don't feel like doing a lot of these things. And Sometimes we don't even feel like getting up and having our quiet time every day and just obeying the word every day. Man, it would, just, it would be a lot easier if, if, if the Bible just kind of was the same as the culture. But we've got to realize, even on days when I feel like it and even on days when I don't, I've got to be faithful to this book and I got to be faithful to the one who's called me and what he's called me to do. Um, uh, I, I, played, I played football in school. Y'all, y'all can kind of tell by looking at me, right, that I also haven't passed a Mexican food restaurant in a while either without stopping. So I'm kind of a big guy, so I played football. And in football, in high school, in school, I, I, played, on, I played tight end and I played defensive end. So on offense and defense, I played on the same side of the, the line, right, and uh, I, I remember um, one year we had a pretty good team, and we, we were hoping we would win the district and everything. And uh, so first, f- football is not like basketball. In basketball, you can kind of look on the other end of the court, and you can kind of size up the, uh, the competition by how tall they are. In football, they're way on the other end of the field. In football, you can't really size up the opponent until the very first snap, and you're right across the line from them. Okay, <laughs> and so I remember this first game of the season, right? We, we, we're, we're supposed to be pretty good, and so we go out there, and the other team has the ball first, so I'm on defense playing defensive end, and I kid you not, this team comes out here, and they run out a tight end across the line for me. He's supposed to block me this whole game, and he's like this tall. And he might weigh 85 pounds if he was holding two bags of bricks. And I'm going to tell you what, I was so excited. I was like, oh, my goodness, I'm about to have the game of my life. I'm going to have all these tackles for loss. I'm going to sack the quarterback. I'm going to cause these fumbles. And I was so excited because this little guy, I was going to wear this guy out the whole game. And so, come on, snap that ball. I'm ready. And they snapped the ball. The very first play from scrimmage of the game. I don't know how the kid did it. But he somehow dove right at my shins, and he knocked me on top of himself, and they ran the ball right by me. Shoom. And I can still hear my coach yelling at me, Fisher. What are you doing? And then he then he yelled some other things I can't say in church. Okay, and uh, and I got myself up and I was like, Yeah, that was lucky, kid. All right, come on, I'm going to get you this time. They snapped the ball again. He does the exact same. I don't know how he did it. Still don't know how he did it. And in the course of the game, this kid just kept knocking me down on top of him, and I was trying everything. I was trying this. I tried the Matador thing. I tried splitting my legs. If you go through there. I couldn't do it, and I'll tell you what, I started that game all like this, and I ended that game like this. We got to the end of the season playing in the championship game, just like we hoped we would. Other team got the ball first. I'm on defense again, <laughs> Net team lines up. Every one of those boys on the other side of the line, they're a head taller and a foot wider than any of us, and we all kind of looked at each other like, this is going to be a long game. And uh, they killed us at first drive. We got back to the sideline, and the coach got us together, and reminded us of our fundamentals, and gave us a little inspirational talk. And you know what? We did okay that day. I'm telling you a little story to tell you this. There are days where it's going to feel a little easier to follow God. There are days when you're going to feel Moses chapter 13. But let's be honest, there are also plenty of days where we feel like Moses chapter 3. God, I don't know if I can endure this anymore. God, I don't know if I can, I can, I can do this, this situation that, that I need to be faithful to your calling in. But friends, on the good days and the bad days, the days we feel like it and the days we don't, we have to obey. And I'll tell you what helps us with that, friends, is when we understand that God who has called me to this, He's going to see me through it. He's going to be with me and walk through it. And the last little thing I just want to share with you is this. If we were able to keep reading, we could see down here. Look at this. Look look, look, look down with me just really quickly at like toward the ends of verse 16. He says, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. Now look at verse 17. Now watch what God says to Moses in verse 17. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 18, they will listen to your voice. You and the elders of Israel will go to the king of Egypt and you're going to say to him these things. And now look at verse 19, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Y'all, do you see what God is telling Moses? Moses. God is telling Moses the future. Hey, now Moses, if you'll just obey me and walk off this mountain and know that I'm with you and know that I'm with your words and know that I'm with your steps, if you'll just obey me, let me just tell you how it's going to go. The people will listen to you. Pharaoh is going to be a knothead. But guess what, Moses? I am going to do the things required to get the calling done. And Moses has to trust in that. So before Moses is called to this difficult task, God tells him, y'all, God tells him how it's going to end. My friend, can I just share with you this morning? Don't know what difficult thing you're walking through. But you know that when we get to the end of this book, and actually throughout it, God tells us how it's all going to end. And one day Jesus is going to part the sky, and one day Jesus is going to return to this earth, and he is going to consummate his kingdom, and he's going to make everything new, and he's going to fix everything that was wrong. He's going to make it everything right. Everyone's going to get their just reward and all that kind of thing. And and so we've got to not be so short-sighted. Because we think, I don't know if I can. I can't see beyond this cancer. I can't see beyond this this, this situation in my family. I can't see beyond these things. And God is telling us, just look to the end. And so many times, my friends, when we look to the end, it really helps us in the middle, doesn't it? You know, I think of Florence Chadwick, the first woman to, to swim across uh, across the, 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 the English Channel, and she was swimming, from, trying to swim from Catalina Island to the coast of California, and her first try, she was swimming, and swimming. it was very foggy, swimming and swimming, and finally, she just got so tired, she got so, so weary, she asked to be pulled out of the water, and they pulled her out of the water like 200 yards before she made the coast. And when she tried a second time, it was sunny. And she could see the coast as she was swimming. And later she said, somebody said, what was the difference between your first attempt and your second attempt? And she said, the difference between one and two was this. On my second attempt, I could see the goal. And it encouraged me to keep going. Friend, you need encouragement to keep going. Think about the goal. Look what God told Moses. Think about what God tells you. One of my great memories from childhood, uh, as I mentioned, didn't have a father figure in my life, and my brother, who's nine years older than me, was, was that to some degree, um, until he moved off, you know, but, but, but when, when he was home and I was at home, sports was our connection, and he would take me, I grew up in Fort Worth area, he'd take me to Rangers games and Cowboys games and Mavericks games, and, and, and so sports is kind of our connection. And so uh, the 1980 Winter Olympics were in Lake Placid, New York. I would have been 10, and uh, we were watching the Olympics together. That, that was the year Eric Heiden won the five gold medals in in speed skating, right? And we won a six gold medals that year. Do you remember what the sixth gold medal was? The hockey team. And so I will never forget this moment as long as I live. Um, the, 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 the USA had played the Russians in hockey at Madison Square Garden like a month before the Lake Placid Olympics, and they beat us like 14 to 2. In football, that's like 100 to 7, okay? I mean, that's huge. And so the Americans were doing great, and they had won every game, and then it came time to play the Russians in the semifinal, and like, oh, we're going to get slaughtered, right? In fact, we thought they are going to get slaughtered so bad they actually played that game in the afternoon, not in primetime. I do not even know that ABC was going to air it. But I will never forget, I come home from school, I was home, and my brother comes bursting in the door from work, and he says, Todd, Todd! We beat the Russians in hockey! And I was like, why, why, we, won't, we beat the Russians in hockey, we're gonna go to the gold medal game? And, and ABC aired it that night. Most people don't know it was a replay, it wasn't live. And I, I will never forget sitting there watching that hockey game with my brother. And we watched it with the intensity, right? Man, we were, oh, yeah, yeah, and high-fiving and everything. We weren't fist-bumping because that wasn't a thing then. I don't even know that high-fiving was a thing then. We were just like, way to go, yeah. And so we were like, man, this is awesome. And then the Americans went up, you know, with like, like 10 minutes left in the third period. We're winning four to three. And I mean, the Russians put an all-out onslaught on our goal, and they were shooting everything. And Jim Craig, our goalie, you couldn't have fired it past him with the howitzer. He was blocking and stopping everything. And we were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm going to tell you, even though we were excited, even though we were fired up, there wasn't that pit in my stomach. You know, when like when you're watching, you know, like yesterday, are we even going to score a point? <laughs> Sorry I brought that up. That was painful for some of you. Remember, God is with you. Um, I didn't have that pit in my stomach. You know why? Because I already knew the outcome. I already knew we were, we were going to win. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you. I don't know what you're going through. I can only imagine how hard and painful it might be. But I'm telling you this. If you've turned from your sin, and you've turned from self, and you have died to self, and you have committed your life to follow Christ in faith, let me tell you something. You are on the winning team. And it may feel like right now, chapter three to you, but chapter 13 is coming. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Stay faithful to what he's called you to do, to endure, whatever it might be. And know that your God never leaves you and loves you and empowers you to walk with him. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for this passage of Scripture. And I thank you, Lord, for what we have uh, seen in your exp- encounter with Moses. Father, the calling you have put on our lives is not necessarily an easy one. It's a calling to turn away from sin, to turn from the world, to, to, to die to ourselves, it's a calling to be different from the world. It's a calling to endure suffering that you allow in our lives to deepen our faith, strengthen our faith, teach us things about you. And so we come before you, Lord, acknowledging that following you is, is not going to be an easy thing. But, oh Lord, we know it is the best thing. And we know that in our in you and in following you and what you called us to to follow you here lies our identity and here lies our purpose and our meaning it's in you Lord and so Father I pray for anyone this morning that's here that that hasn't turned away from sin and self and world to come and follow you in faith and to be on the side that one day ultimately will win it all Father, I pray for that person today that they might come to you today. And in just a minute, you'll have that opportunity to come and share with Pastor Rowan your desire to follow Christ. And others of us, you're here and you feel like chapter three. You don't feel that strong. You don't don't feel like obeying. You're not sure if you're going to make it. But if you are faithful, Even on days when you don't feel like it. You'll see that chapter 13. And so thank you, Lord, that one day you will send Jesus back to this earth to make all things right and all things new. Father, as we live for you now on this earth, and even in the hardships, would you give us joy and peace and confidence knowing that you, God, are the winner. And we ask this in Jesus' name.